You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. So we have been uh, learning from the first letter of the Thessalonians, and uh, we are coming to the end of it. This is not the last sermon. There's going to be one more after this. But uh, we are in the last chapter of First Thessalonians. And if you've been with us, you have uh, noticed a little bit of a transition with Paul. He begins the letter by um, encouraging the, the church and highlighting everything they've done and the good things they have accomplished. And then after, uh, when we get to chapter 4, he transitions to a more uh, directive uh, kind of uh, talking to the church or writing to the church. And there was this obsession or fixation that the church in Thessalonica had with the second coming of Jesus. We talked a little bit about this in the, in the previous sermon. And in fact, there were some people that were so obsessed with the coming of Jesus that they decided that they were not going to work or they were not going to do anything productive with their lives because they were just going to wait for Jesus. And if you read the, the previous chapter, you see that Paul talks to those people and encourages them to work with their hands and not to be a burden to others. These people were becoming a burden to the church. In fact, there's a second letter to the church of Thessalonica, and he addresses that again. And he famously says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, let those who do not work not eat. Uh, and ma many of us have heard this. So this is a, a, a big topic in this church. And Paul has been talking about the second coming of Jesus. And last week we saw that uh, he was correcting some of the wrong thinking about the resurrection and how that was going to happen. We talked about how when Jesus comes back, the Christians who are dead will be the first ones to resurrect and meet Jesus in the air. And then after that, all the believers will join them in the air as well or be, will be raptured or taken uh, together. And now we move on to um, just what is it that it means for us the resurrection of the dead, the last things, the second coming of Jesus. What does it mean for us as a church? And so we're going to be today reading a little bit more about that. And we're going to take some time to learn uh, a little bit of the Christian positions on the end things or what, what's commonly known as, as eschatology. So, uh, but before we dive into that, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. And again, it's First Thessalonians Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And it says this. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are, while people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. 
but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I want to just let you know that within Christianity, there's many positions about how the end looks like, uh, the second coming of Christ, how, does that, how is that interpreted. Um, and in fact, our church, uh, we have a statement of faith. And when we talk about the last things, we have certain elements that we believe are important, but we don't have other elements. For instance, we don't, we don't have a position about when exactly this is happening or how exactly this is happening. So let me just go ahead and read uh, our statement of faith for our church. And this is on our website if you want to get to know more about it. And it says this about the consummation of the last things. We believe that Jesus will return to earth to judge all people and to rule and reign with his saints forever. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we, we know that he's coming back. We also believe that all people will be resurrected to give an account of their lives before God. We also don't have a position on when they will resurrect. And we'll talk about a little uh, different positions in a minute. The believer will resurrect in Christ, uh, or the believer in Christ will be resurrected to everlasting blessedness and joy in the presence of God. And the unbeliever will be resurrected to judgment and everlasting conscious punishment. Again, we don't have a specific teaching or uh, position in the chronology of these events. So, let me go ahead and, and, and for a moment just give you a glimpse of what Christians believe about the end. So Paul begins by telling the, Thessalon the Thessalonians that concerning the times and the seasons, you do not have anything or need to have anything written to you. Yet, he writes to them about this. Verse 2, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. If you caught this, you will realize that there's never a specific mention of the coming of Jesus Christ in this text. Yet, most of us believe and understand when the day of the Lord is mentioned, it implies that Jesus is coming back. So there's a little bit of... Um, controversy about this, but let me just clarify something. Every time you see the phrase, the day of the Lord in the, in the Bible, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, well, what it is referring to is a day or a moment or a season in which God directly and drastically impacts or intervenes in history or in this earth, in our lives. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the prophets talked a lot about the day of the Lord, and it was usually judgment towards Gentile nations or sometimes against his own people. And what that means is that God was going to intervene and act directly 
to accomplish his plans with his people or with other people. That's what it means when we talk about the day of the Lord. And we see days of the Lord throughout Scripture. When, when, when uh, Israel was taken out of captivity from Egypt, when Israel was taken into captivity to Babylon, different places tell us about days of the Lord. But all of this ha are sort of a reference or a shadow of a day of the Lord or the day of the Lord. And when in the New Testament we, we talk about the day of the Lord, we again talk about the last day day in which God will intervene or drastically uh, act in our world to bring about judgments and his plans, judgment and his plans. And that, depending on how you interpret uh, the end times, will mean either one day or a moment or maybe a period of time. And let me explain that. So when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and saying the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, he's referring to the moment of the last or the beginning of the last times or the beginning of the end. So let me just go ahead and explain to you some of the positions. And, and you might already have a position. You might not have a position. I, I hope this helps you. Uh, this is not the main part of the sermon, but it is important for us to understand what we're talking about. So within Christianity, or what we call uh, Orthodox Christianity, there's basically, there's more, but there's basically four positions that are uh, what it's called Orthodoxy, right? Uh, and two of them uh, would interpret the day of the Lord as a long period of time, the first two that we're going to see. And then the last two that we'll see interpret the day of the Lord as one event or as one season. Now, the day of the Lord is not necessarily re referring to a 24-hour period. Some people might think of it as a season or as an epoch or as a time. But it depends on, again, on how you interpret this. You will take it as a shorter version or a very long version. So the first one that I want to I show you, and this will be on the screen, is the first two that are called premillennial. Now, all of them refer to a time described in, uh, in Revelation 20 that is a time that it's a thousand years when uh, the devil will be tied or will be uh, put away in a pit and he will not be able to interact. And then during this time, Jesus and his saints will be governing or will be uh, uh, reigning on this earth. And then after this period of time uh, ends, the devil will be again be released for a, for a few uh, moments and then the end will come. How this is interpreted, it depends on many things. Some people think this is a, a almost literal thousand of years or a literal thousand years, and others believe it's a figurate, uh, figuratively. So the first one is the dispensational premillennialism. And if you can look at the chart at the top, you'll see a cross. And that means that's when Jesus died. Then you see a church. And that means it's the church age. So right after Jesus died, the church age begins. And if you're familiar with uh, Left Behind and all of those books, this is what they believe. This, they, this is a, a kind of uh, eschatology that they espouse. It's uh, dispensationalism. They believe that there's a secret resurrection or a secret return of Christ in which the people of God are raptured 
then there's a seven-year tribulation, then Armageddon happens, and then there's another visible uh, return of Christ, and then there's the millennium, the thousand years, then Satan is released, and then the rest of the people are resurrected, which is the pillar that you see at the end, and that ushers the new heaven and the new earth, which is at the far end of that chart. That's what dispensational premillennialism is, okay? So for them, there is a literal thousand years. Now, the, the next one is the one that I adhere to, and again, I don't want to impose any of this. You can feel free to research this. The second one is historic premillennialism. Jesus came. We are in the church age, and then there is a moment in which Jesus will come back, and then the resurrection of the just or the believers will come, which is what we saw in Philippians, in, in Thessalonians, uh, in the previous chapter. That will usher the time of uh, 1,000 years, and then again, Satan will be released. Everyone will be resurrected and judged, and that will usher the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so these are the two positions that believe in a thousand years of the millennium as almost literal. Premillennialists will not tell you that it's exactly a thousand years. No, it's a long period of time. So then we have the two other that do not believe that there is exactly 1,000 years. And this is the postmillennials and the amillennials. Now, before I move on to that one, for the premillennials, when they talk about the day of the Lord, it means the moment in which Jesus comes back and whatever happens after that. So, when, when Paul is writing to this church, whether they believe any of these positions, it could have meant Jesus is coming back and whatever happened after that as thousands of years or as a moment. So for the next two positions, it means just a moment. For the premillennials, is a lot of time. For the next two positions, it's just a moment. And the postmillennials believe, again, Jesus came. We're in the church age. And the thousand years is something that it's virtual and not literal, and also this, the, the release of Satan is something that it's figuratively uh, uh, understood. But then, at the end of all that, Jesus comes back, everyone is resurrected together, and they're judged, and then that ushers the new earth and the new heaven. That is the post-millennial position, okay? Now, if you look at the, at the next one, they are the amillennial position. And you kind of look at it and you say, what is the difference? The difference is that the post-millennials, even though they don't believe it's a, a specific amount of time of the thousand years, they believe that there is some sort of possibility of the thousand years actually being a thousand years. So they believe that whatever happens will, ha will happen after this possible period of a thousand years. The difference is that the amillennials do not believe that there is a specific a, a thousand years or millennium. It's not an actual thing. It's actually what's happening right now together with the release of Satan. So that's why they don't believe that. They believe that after this age ends, Jesus will come back. Everyone will be resurrected and judged, and then the end will come or the new heaven and the new earth new earth will come. So, I'm giving you 
the hypersonic version of everything. Each one of these positions deserves an entire book. It's very nuanced. There's a lot of different details that need to be said about each position. But what I want you to understand is when we hear the day of the Lord, we're talking about the beginning of the end. Whether that means a thousand years or more, or just a moment. And if you notice, each one of those believing one thing. The thousand years of the day, I'm sorry, the, the, the day of the Lord begins with Jesus coming back. All of them believe that Jesus is coming back. When is Jesus coming back? That's what Paul addresses. And he says, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. And this is probably because Paul said or echoed what Jesus told to his disciples. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 13, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only who? The Father. So the point of this is nobody knows but the day of the Lord begins with Jesus coming back. So for the sake of our talk right now, when we say the day of the Lord, when we hear the mention of the day of the Lord, we're talking about the day when Jesus come in, come, comes back for us, and then the end begins, okay? So how is this going to happen? We don't know when it's going to happen. We know for sure it will happen, and we know for sure that it is something that will happen to everyone. This is for the believer and also for the not-believer. But how is this going to happen? And then Paul elaborates on this, and he says in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, how is this going to happen? It's going to happen unexpectedly. And then Paul is making a case here that it will come like a thief in the night. Number one, this is not going to happen at night. Especially, this is going to be a worldwide event, so it's impossible for it to happen at night because when it's night in some parts of the world, it's going to be day in other parts of the world. So what this is referring to is that nobody will expect it, and it will happen when nobody expects it. But then there is a specific people that this will take him by surprise more than others, and they are the people who do not believe in Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 3, Paul changes from we or you today? In verse 3, he, will say, he says, Then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul is referring to the people who do not believe in Jesus. For them, for the people who are not believers, who, the people who say that's really not going to happen, that's just, that's just a myth, for them it will come, it will happen like a thief in the night. And it will precisely happen like a thief in the night because for them this is not a big deal. This is really not what it says it is. 
And it actually alludes to labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And I, was, I had permission from my wife yesterday to share this with you. But she reminded me that when we had our first child, she went to her OBGYN a couple of uh, either weeks or months before uh, she delivered our first baby, Joel, who's now 11. And one nurse told her, you know what, don't worry about it. It's not going to be like in the movies. The nurse said, you see those you people running to the hospital and the woman like <gasps> breathing and, like, and, the, and the nurse said, it's not going to be like that. So we were anticipating that it wasn't going to be like that. And then one Sunday, I still remember it was a Sunday, July the 3rd, 2011, early in the morning, my wife woke up because of pain. And from that moment on, everything just went crazy. And it was exactly like in the movies. I was trying to get a, a, like, I was trying to wake up and take a bath, and she's like, no, we need to go. And she wasn't, like, actually speaking normally. She was very agitated, to say the least. And um, my mother-in-law was with us, so we literally had to run to the hospital. And then I was in the hospital, and she kept, she, we were on the way to the hospital, and she kept saying, go faster. And then I would press the gas, and she was like, no, slower. And then, no, faster. So I, I didn't know what to do. We got to the hospital. I dropped her off in the wrong door because she needed to get down. So she had to walk in the hospital. I get down to the car. She's like crawled like on a couch. And then it was a mess. My mother-in-law went to buy some shoes. I don't know why. And when she came back, the baby was born. And I was like, what happened? It wasn't supposed to be like this. I have never seen my wife or any other person in so much pain. I was white. I thought she was going to die. She told me that she thought she was going to die. But it was a surprise. It was chaos. It was, it was everything that the nurse said it wasn't going to be. So that's exactly what Paul is saying. It's like, for those who say, it's not going to be a big deal, for them, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be like, oh no, it's happening. It's true. And it is precisely because they don't believe it's going to happen like that. And then, it's going to be too late. And that's why he says, destruction, sudden destruction will come upon them. Because that, when you realize it's happening, and when you're in the middle of it, it's too late. Destruction will come on that day to the unbeliever or the Christian who might not be sure of this or might think it's just a fake. Because that, that is the last time. There, there, I mean, sorry, it's, there's no more opportunities to repent. It's the end. It's the beginning of the end. So if you're hearing this and you are a believer, let me tell you, there are streams of Christianity that actually deny the end things. And if you're not a believer, then this makes no sense to you. And I really, I'm not one of those preachers that, 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 that want to scare people into becoming a Christian, but this is what the text is saying. And my responsibility as a, as a, as a pastor is to, to tell you what the Bible is saying. So today I have to tell you, don't wait until it's too late. This is actually happening. And if you don't get ready for this, and if you don't prepare for this, it's going to catch you by surprise. 
and it's going to be too late. So the opportunity for you to repent and to turn to Jesus is today. Because we don't know when this is going to happen. We don't know when this is going to happen. Paul also says that this will come when everyone is saying, peace, there is peace and security. Everything is fine. And we don't know if this is meant entirely as a society. We don't know if this is meant just for you individually. But there is hardly a time in history where there is peace and security everywhere. That is a very local thing to say, correct? Because maybe today, if you watch the news, you will realize that we can hardly say this right now. I know of two countries that I'm very well aware, and there is no peace or security in any of them. And that's America and Mexico. But if you look at the news, I don't think anybody can say this right now. Yet, I don't know if this is, oh, well, this means that Jesus is not coming right now. I don't know. But some people will be saying there is peace and security. And suddenly, destruction will come. We continue in verse 4, and he says, but you, did you notice he changed from them to you now? He's now talking to the church. He says, but you are not in darkness. There's a distinction on how the end, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus will be seen by the unbeliever and a difference between how we should see it as Christians. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. This is for the believer. This is for us, for New City Fellowship. For us, it's not going to be like a thief in the night. This is not going to surprise us. And look at what it says in verse 5. For you are all, what? Children of light. There is... There is no way that my kids will be scared when they hear me coming into the house at night. If you are expecting your dad to come back and it's 11 p.m. or midnight and you're a child and you hear the knob turn, you get excited because you know daddy is coming back. But if you're not expecting daddy and you don't even know what happened and you hear the nub in the middle of the night in your house, you get nervous, right? You look around and see what you have close to you to defend yourself. But for us, it's not going to be like that. For us, the day of the Lord is not going to be like a thief coming in the middle of the night because we are children of light. We are children of the day. We are his children and we live in light. We are not in the darkness. We are not unaware of this. We know this has happened. We believe this is going to happen. And we should expect this to happen. In fact, and we talked about this last week or two weeks ago, for the believer, the day of the Lord is referred to as our blessed hope. Titus 2, 11 to 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there's, there's one appearance of God on this earth, and the first one is called 
the grace of God that has appeared. And that's the one that brought salvation to all people. And that's Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' life and Jesus' death on the cross for us. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a second time when he is appearing. And this is the time when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, shows up. That is how we are supposed to see it. This is our blessed hope. Jesus, the one that you pray to all the time, the one that you sing about all the time, the one that you believe in all the time, the one that you cry to in your darkest hours, the one that you have placed your faith in, the one that gave his life for you on that cross, the one that took the nails on your place, he is coming back. And that is not like a thief in the night. That is better than daddy's coming back home. That is our blessed hope. Because we are not from the darkness. We are not uh, from the night. We are from the, we, the, from the day. We, we, we live knowing this. There is nothing fishy or unclear about it. He is coming. And it's true. And for us, our, our peace and our security is finally arriving. To the, to the unbeliever, the peace and the security is found here. To those people who do not believe in an eternal being that provides security and peace, their security and peace is their job, is their bank account, is their education, is their family, their possessions, their country, their, 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 their status. All of those things bring peace and security to them. But for us, but for us, peace and security is not a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ coming to us. That is the expectation for us as his children. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And I shared with you last time, when I was little, I was probably like 12 years old, and I was uh, shoved into youth group because that's when you need to go to youth group. And I remember they put us this movie, and I mentioned this last, last week or two weeks ago. It's, it's actually called Like a Thief in the Night. And it scared me to death. And now I realize that that movie is not meant for Christians. That movie did not make me want Jesus to come back. I was scared. My parents one time on a Saturday morning decided to all go to the store without me. And I was the last one to get up. And I walked up and nobody was in my house. There was like the, the beds that were clearly somebody was sleeping there. I walk around and there's nobody. My sister is not there. My parents are not there. And I was just freaking out. I was like, I was left behind for sure. I literally walked out 
<laughs> to the patio and I look up to the, to the sky to be like, like, what is happening? And I was never someone who was expecting of Jesus is coming back. But after actually reading the Bible, this should be exciting for all of us. But it has a purpose. And verse 6 says, so, lend, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. So, so there's an emphasis on being sober, on not falling asleep. Think of this. How do you feel when you're asleep? How many of you would like to take a nap right now? How does it feel to go asleep? It's comfortable, right? When you think of sleeping, it's like, just, you forget everything. You're no longer battling with your children. You're no longer paying bills. You're no longer dealing with your boss or with the neighbor, or with whatever you're going through. Falling asleep is, it's comfortable, right? And then the other, the other analogy you use here is, be sober. And when you think about not being sober, is when you just basically let go. When you just lost your control to a substance or to something else, and then you're just relaxed. I don't know if you've ever being not sober, but it's kind of like a freeing feeling in a way. It's like you are uninhibited, right? You're just going with the flow. And Paul is actually telling us, be sober, meaning be aware of what's happening around you, and not fall asleep. And both of these things imply some sort of discomfort. Both of these imply looking around. And then he says, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and a helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. This is interesting, and if you're a believer, you already know where Paul is going. He is referring to something that he speaks to, when, uh, to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 6. He talks about the armor of God. And Paul is saying, Jesus is coming back, and this should be exciting for us, but this should also maintain us alert because we are still battling. We are still in the middle of the struggle. This is happening, but we need to be sober and we need to be alert. We cannot get comfortable. We cannot just fall asleep and do precisely what the Thessalonians were doing. I'm not going to work anymore. I'm just going to chill and wait for Jesus to come back. And that's going to be amazing. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is referencing a moment when he actually talks about warfare. In fact, he talks about the breastplate and a helmet. And if you read Ephesians 6, this is in the context of war. He is telling us Jesus is coming back. But in the meantime, 
You are going to struggle, and you need some weapons to continue to fight. And you cannot be asleep, and yet you cannot let your guard down. You have to utilize these weapons that I, I have given to you. For us as Christians, while we wait for Jesus, we're going to struggle. For us as Christians, as we, with expectation, await for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, we are going to have to suffer and battle in between. And we need the weapons that God has given to us today, right now. And even though Paul doesn't go into detail here, we now have the full picture. And he, he's talking about the breastplate of faith, which now in Ephesians 6 he calls the shield of faith, and the, the breastplate of love. And he's also talking about uh, uh, the sword of uh, the Word of God and the Spirit of God and prayer and all of these things that we have available to us today. Even, even though Paul is not going into detail, he is hinting to us that we have to fight with the weapons that are not from this earth. He says, finally be strong in the Lord, this is Ephesians 6, and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And I want to take a minute to talk about this. We are in a moment of our church as a new city, as new city fellowship, and as a society and as a world where everyone is beaten up. Everyone. The pandemic has done things that we never anticipated was going to do. Has brought up things that we never thought were going to come out. We are all going through depression at some level, anxiety. There's people who are losing their jobs. People are quitting left and right. There's relationships that are broken all over the place. As people, we are in a bad place. And Paul is reminding us, our weapons are not of this world. And our battle is not against material things. It's not, about, it's not against flesh and blood. And one of the worst things that we have done is that we have forgotten about the practices of reading Scripture, of praying, of having faith, of memorizing Scripture, of going to God. And I am the first one to admit to this. I want all of us to know that while we're here and while Jesus is coming, we need to be sober and we need to be alert and we need to be fighting. And as I was preparing to, 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 to preach these, this text, the Lord has been speaking to me of how much I depend on my own strength and my own devices. 
The first thing I want to do is talk to somebody. The first thing I want to do is find a new something to do. The first thing I want to do is come up with my own abilities to do certain things. And I feel like that's what we do as people today. We want to we wanna get ourselves up. We want to we wanna, we wanna find ways for us to fight in our strength. But Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, you can't do it on your own. I've already given you what you need. Go to scripture. Go to, go to prayer. Listen to what it says in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is it that we're thinking about? Are we thinking of truth? Is that our belt? And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, are we continuing to preach the gospel of peace? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints. As people, as a church, we are not going to make it without this. We are not going to make it with our best intentions or with our abilities. It's not about money. It's not about strategy. It's not about counseling. It's not about anything that we have here. It's about resting in God and going to God and humbling ourselves before God and going to Scripture and going to fasting and spending time with Him. And that is what I cannot even understand on a day-to-day -day basis. I've been thinking, what are we going to do for New City so that this will continue? What, are we, what is the next strategy? So that we, and and I, it's not me. It's not you. It's not about what you're going to do about your life so that you can get to the next level. It's not about that. It's about what are you going to do to humble yourself before Jesus because it's ultimately His will. I know that we are hurting in every way. I know. I think I've never been depressed in my life, and I have experienced what that means. In the last year, I've had two panic attacks. And therapy and counseling is great. And thank God for those things. But there's nothing like the Word of God. There's nothing like fasting. There's nothing like just saying, Jesus, I can't. Understanding that it's supernatural. We don't battle flesh and blood. We are under attack. This is a war. There is an enemy that wants you to be dead. There is an enemy that wants this church to be dead. There is someone here, 
lurking around, trying to find ways to destroy your marriage and your life and the life of your children. And it's not going to be with new education or anything else that we're going to withstand this. It's only through the armor of God. And the best thing is that even though we have all these things, we have, a, we have a shield, we have a sword, we have a, a belt, we have a breastplate, all those things, the best part of the entire armor is the helmet. We have been given a helmet of salvation. The, 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 the very thing that protects everything else. There's, if, if you're in a fight and you can get to the brain in one blow, that's it. And guess what? Our brain is already protected by a helmet of salvation that is immovable. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the war has already, already been won. The, Jesus already died for us. He already covered our most elemental and, 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 and even... Um, tender part, our, our, our brain. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus gave us the helmet of salvation. We are not destined for wrath. God has given us everything that we need. You are not battling for whether you go to heaven or not. You are not battling for that. You are not battling for your salvation. That is settled. That was settled 2,000 years ago. You are saved. You are going to be with him. You are going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ if you have made that decision. That is secure. But we still need to fight. I need to finish. So if you're not a believer, I want to say, this is for you too. This salvation is free for you. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to behave well to be a Christian. You don't have to have a set of morals or ethics. No. You need to come to Jesus, repent from your sin, and recognize that you are a sinner, and he loves receiving bad people. You have no idea. Heaven is free. And it's free for all. You cannot earn it. You can only go to it through grace by an undeserving gift. And that is the gift of Jesus dying in our place on the cross 2,000 years ago and cleansing us with his blood and forgiving us through his sacrifice and now coming back to take us back home forever. And Paul ends this section saying, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing it right now. Church, this is the moment when we need each other more than any, any other time. We need to be encouraging one another with this. If you have friends in the church, meet up and pray. If you have friends in the church, meet up and yes, have a good time, but pray with each other, read scripture with each other, fast together. Encourage each other, memorize scripture together. 
We need each other. This is not just for you to be excited about Jesus coming back. This is for all of us to encourage one another as a church. Let's utilize these weapons that we have been given. Especially during this difficult time. In society, do it with others. Do it with people around you. And in church as well. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Jesus, thank you because you are coming back for us. Jesus, thank you because you are, you have destined us for salvation. Jesus, thank you because you have already given us everything we need to wait for you and to have victory in the middle of this battle. Lord, I pray that you would help us be alert, sober, and joyful as we await for you. Lord, I pray that us as a church would be a church that utilizes this gift, love and faith and prayer and scripture reading. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that will never cease to preach your gospel. Let us not lose track of our mission as a church, corporately and also individually. Help us, God, be missionaries in this area, in this community. Lord, we can't wait for you to come back. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.